I also understand it's exam time, so I particularly appreciate everyone being here, who is here. Um, this is uh, a small turnout than we normally have, but this is a hard time for, um, for many of you. But uh, nevertheless, I'm delighted um, to introduce Barrett Gerritsen to you. Um, she's been a WAP fellow here um, uh, during this semester. And she has a very fancy title, and as an economist, I like the inter-household bargaining notion, but that kind of means spouses talking or negotiating to one another. <laughs> um, but it is, uh, I mean, really a very, very important topic because it, it also is a black box that we haven't opened for a very long time. I mean, we've been thinking about negotiation, gender differences in negotiation, bargaining, um, but we, we haven't really, or not many researchers have dared to go into the household and understand what impact relative power negotiation skills um, of spouses have on allocations of goods and power in the household and more generally economic empowerment. So, and health. Um, this is going to particularly going to focus on health. So this is really important work. And uh, it also takes place in Malawi, so we're really looking forward um, to your presentation, Barry. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this very kind introduction, and thank you so much for having me here. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to present my research to you, and I'm very much looking forward to your feedback and your comments, especially since this research is also part of my dissertation, which I plan to hand in next year, so I'm particularly <laughs> excited for your feedback on this. Um, So my main motivation for embarking on this research was the stylized fact that most HIV infections in Sub-Saharan Africa, the region where most people infected with this disease are living, that most HIV infections in this region occur during heterosexual intercourse between persons in couple relationships. So in contrast to the nature of the disease in, parts of the, in most parts of the Western world, people in couple relationships are actually an important risk group for infection. And on a more general note, please go ahead. I hate to be the person to ask the question on the first slide. But, uh, what's a couple relationship? Um, anyone being in a relationship that would either be married or girlfriend boyfriend relationship, but oh, typically so a more more stable, more stable, stable relationships would say, yeah, yeah. Right. Thank you. This would not include infrequent partnerships, but it would include more sta the more stable notion, not necessarily within the marital union, but a more stable. Thank you. Um, so on a more general note, HIV prevention is always more than an individual decision because regardless of how, how well you're trying to protect yourself, if your partner is not on board, uh, this is, HIV prevention can, cannot, be, cannot be efficient. So there are inter important interaction effects between individual HIV prevention efforts and the behavior of the partner or structural factors and so on. And I am particularly interested in the importance of intra-household bargaining power in this regard because gender inequality has been identified as a key driver of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, both for biological as well as for social reasons. From a biological point of view, women tend to be more susceptible to get infected with HIV-AIDS in heterosexual relationships, as in general the receptive partner is more likely to get infected in, hetero in any type of relationship. From a social point of view, women continue to be marginalized in many societies, particularly in the developing world, which could then make it more difficult for them to have access to both prevention and treatment with, for example, antiretroviral treatment. It therefore seems, uh, and also from a, um, from a statistical point of view, we do observe significantly higher prevalence levels of HIV among women in, in Sub-Saharan Africa in general and also in Malawi. 
So from a policy perspective, it seems to be highly relevant to gain a better understanding of intra-household bargaining power in this regard in order to improve HIV prevention efforts. The research question that I'm trying to address is what role does intra-household bargaining power play in the decision to use HIV prevention? And I'm looking at three different measures of HIV prevention efforts. I'm studying HIV-related spousal communication, so basically what a couple say that they have talked to each other about the risk of HIV and what they can do to decrease this risk. So whether they are talking about the risk of it and what potential measures would, would be, potential strategies. I'm also studying whether these couples are in favor of using condoms within marriage. So whether they consider condoms as an acceptable prevention method for married couples as opposed to single individuals or for the use outside the marital relationship. I'm also interested in the determinants of self-reported extramarital behavior because it constitutes an important risk factor. Of course, while being very aware of the potential caveats you can be facing when using a self-reported measure or something like that. Previous literature in this field can be found in two different areas. The first stream of literature uses cross-sectional data to understand the association between HIV prevention uptake and numerous dimensions of bargaining power. I've only listed papers here that use um, couple data, so data on both husbands and spouses. Of course, there's numerous um, additional papers out there that study female bargaining power in samples of women only. But here I'm looking at papers that have tried to include both um, the husband's as well as the wife's bargaining power in the regression equation. And these papers, uh, the four papers that I've mentioned here, they can obviously tell us a lot regarding correlations and associations between measures of bargaining power such as age differences, education differences, also the importance of polygamy with respect to uh, HIV prevention decisions. But they are potentially facing issues regarding unobserved heterogeneity. So namely, if it is the same unobservable factors that make women more likely to be empowered, that also make them more likely to use prevention. So if you're thinking about diligence, for example, if you're a very careful, a very diligent person, this is quite likely to reflect in your efforts in school, at work, in your interactions with others. But it probably also makes you more likely to be particularly careful when thinking about adequate HIV prevention decisions and the risk of HIV in your partnership. And in a cross-sectional data setting where we observe individuals only once, it is not necessarily possible to take these factors into account because most of these attitudes and characteristics are not necessarily measurable. So there is a second type of literature that tries to get around these issues and tries to identify a causal relationship between bargaining power and, um, and HIV prevention uptake. The first paper that I mentioned studies exogenous shocks to kin support by um, looking at the death of, of siblings of, of the wife and assuming that if one of your siblings dies that this would then affect uh, the, the amount of kin support, the amount of family support you're receiving and this would actually result in changes in bargaining power. They study the the resulting impact on risk factors such as extramarital behavior. The second uh, literature that I mentioned here studies the impact of conditional cash transfer programs that were aimed at both men and women and looks at differential um, treatment of men and women and the resulting impact on HIV prevention uptake. And in line with the previous literature, these papers also find that increasing female bargaining power has a positive impact on HIV prevention uptake. 
The second type of literature, however, is focusing on economic aspects only through kin support or through um, those cash transfers. And while I would certainly not want to challenge the importance of economic empowerment, I guess that when studying such an, such an intimate decision, it probably might also be worthwhile to try and take into account other factors that could empower women, try to have a more multidimensional, more encompassing definition of what empowerment means that potentially also takes into account social and relationship factors. This is where I want to contribute to the literature. I, uh, yeah. Can I just ask you a question? Um, and you may, may not have the answer, but um, there is this um, myth, maybe. I, I think it's a myth, but I'm yeah. not sure, that sometimes empowering women leads to backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you, you um, can violate an equilibrium between yeah. husband and wife, and if you give women more power, then there's more inter-household, more, for example, domestic violence and other things. Is there anything in that literature that would point to that direction? I can't, I can't directly think of any particular paper. What has been argued, but I couldn't think of any like um, more rigid analysis of this, what has been argued is that polygamy, for example, which is quite present in both my sample as well as in the region in general, that polygamy sometimes serves in this equilibrium, the interest of women, and then if you try to change it, it could be more challenging, but I've, I haven't really seen any yeah, rigorous analysis of, of, this, of this backlash, but I would have to, but it's interesting, I'll definitely have to look, have to look into saying, it. I, mean, yeah. I, I just, out of curiosity, because that was a yeah. criticism of microfinance has been raised, yeah. that, um, but I've also yeah. asked Nava and others, it seems like the evidence is very scant that we find that backlash. Yeah. Um, I haven't. I haven't really heard. Of, I haven't heard of anything in, with respect to HIV prevention because I guess um, no. I haven't. If anything, because but then it's also because most empowerment measures would also have a channel through information. So then it probably makes it more likely that both partners will also through this information and also use um, use better prevention. If you, like typically most conditional cash transfer programs <laughs> also include uh, some sort of session where people are being informed on how to use adequate prevention, so, yeah. Yeah, some but of the, I mean, you know, empowering methods like uh, vaginal microbicides don't even require the knowledge of the other partners, so. Uh-huh. Yeah. Although then, yeah, that's, that's, that's true that they are concealable, but it's, yeah. it's still it's, tricky to have yeah. access, so I guess in general it's also you want to, I'm not sure how often concealable methods are available, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that later, actually. I, I have a slide on that, yeah. Um, so I, 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 I want to contribute to the literature by, first of all, merging data on over 500 married couples. Um, from the Malawi Diffusion Additional Change Project, which is a joint longitudinal study carried out by the University of Pennsylvania and the Malawi College of Medicine. And I want to use this, this data on 500 couples to study the determinants of HIV prevention from a more systemic perspective. So I try to simultaneously assess bargaining power of both spouses. So in my regression, I study not only the decision for any of these three prevention methods, but I also study the, um, the income of both spouses, I study the awareness of outside options of both partners, I study political participation as measured by the attendance of local political events, I also study education, and I study the number of wives that the husband has, because 17% of my sample are living in polygamous relationships, so 17% of the husbands in my, wife, in my sample have more than one wife. And furthermore, because 
since 2004, everyone in the sample has been tested for HIV. So I can assess the decision to use HIV prevention conditional on HIV status of both partners, <coughs> which is probably a very important determinant because if my partner is not infected and neither am I, I probably won't necessarily have to use prevention. So I'm also, I can also control for socioeconomic status and quite a few other demographic characteristics. And because I do not only have information on the husband and the first spouse, but also on junior wives in the case of polygamous relationships, I have a second type of analysis where I also try to take into account the role that the junior wives are playing in this, in this decision. And the panel dimension of the data also allows me to capture time-invariant unobserved heterogeneity. As mentioned before, if the same factors and attitudes that make women more likely to be empowered also make them more likely to use prevention, and as long as these attitudes do not change over time, I can capture them by using individual-specific fixed effects, and I can also control for whatever is going on at the village or regional level um, over time because I use region-specific time trends and I also use a national time trend because over the time that I study, um, the HIV prevalence has been decreasing in general, but in rural areas it has been increasing. And because I'm studying rural areas, it's probably very important to also keep this take this into account, as well as the potential of campaigns that took place, which will also be reflected by time trends. Before we move on to the data and the results, I want to present you a few theoretical considerations that we want to take into account when studying uh, HIV prevention and, and intra-household bargaining power. So most economic models of the decision to use HIV prevention refer at some point to a seminal contribution by Philipson and Posner. And in their model, the decision to use condoms or any other type of HIV prevention is seen as determined by cost-utility considerations. So basically individuals would decide to use condoms as soon as the cost that is associated with using them is outweighed by the utility that is gained by using condoms. So basically the cost of condoms would be that you have to pay money for them, also that Potentially, there could be non-monetary costs such as discomfort or the failure to comply with social expectations or the expectations of your partner, and the utility would be that you don't get infected. This model has been criticized quite a lot, particularly because it focuses almost entirely on the private choices of perfectly rational individuals <coughs> without necessarily taking into account the constraints that are induced by cultural and societal structures. So when thinking about HIV prevention decisions, it's certainly important to have this model in the back of your mind, but it, it seems um, somewhat more promising to also take into account intra-household bargaining models, preferably not of the type that assume a unitary preference structure, but rather of the type that assume that all members of the household will have certain preferences and certain restrictions, and all members of the household will have, um, will have a certain share of the bargaining power in the relationship, and the higher your bargaining power, the more likely it is that the final outcome will also represent your preferences in this relationship. When you're thinking about applying bargaining power theory to HIV prevention decisions, um, the first and important point that I, I want to raise, and that, that links to, to your comment before, is the general lack of concealability. Because if we're thinking about easily available prevention methods in a rural setting, we can assume that most of these prevention methods, so that would be condoms or trying to be faithful or getting, uh, getting tested for HIV and then being faithful, all of these successful HIV 
prevention strategies are not necessarily concealable. And this is, I guess, a, um, an important difference, difference to fertility decisions because if we're looking at fertility decisions, it's not all too challenging to say, for example, use birth control without the partner knowing it, but it's much more challenging to use HIV prevention without your partner knowing it. So at the end of the day, it will be something that partners will discuss or there has to be some sort of a cooperative bargaining solution related to it. And also for, for married couples, which is the group that I'm studying, there are further very important limitations because trust seems to play a very important role in a marital relationship and if the use of condoms is associated with distrust, and that is quite likely not only in general because if you've been together with someone for quite some time and then you suddenly start to propose using condoms, that would be seen as potentially a signal of distrust, but also in, in the sample that I'm using, because there is a lot of qualitative research by Chimbiri, for example, but also by Zulan Chepengeno, showing that in rural Malawi, the use of condoms is strongly associated with infidelity, partly because a lot of campaigns have almost exclusively focused on the role of infidelity and on the importance of using condoms in that situation. So there's a strong link between condom use and infidelity. So th this could be an issue for married couples. Furthermore, also, if you want to conceive, if you want to have children at some point, using condoms or any other type of barrier method of HIV prevention is not necessarily helpful. So if you're thinking along the lines of the ABC campaigns, it obviously abstinence is not necessarily um, useful in the long run. So if you're thinking along the lines of the ABC Excuse campaigns. Me. Yes, please go ahead. Why did you say absence is not important? Um, I'm just saying, like, if we're, if you're studying married individuals, then it's challenging. Like I'm not saying abstinence is not in general. Um, it is one. It is part of the ABC campaigns <coughs> that have been um, promoted quite a lot. But if we're looking at married individuals, um, I find it challenging to believe that abstinence is a strategy that people would follow for a very long time. What about for the young generations and the others? Yeah, for, for, the, for the young generation, that is because one of the reasons why abstinence has been promoted quite a lot was also to make sure that the first sexual contact happens a bit later on and potentially, especially, because the HIV rates are particularly high among young women. So in order to decrease the HIV rates among young women, there was also part of the idea behind promoting abstinence was probably also to wait until women have potentially more bargaining power basically at waiting until you're, you've moved on your education or in your life. So the abstinence has been promoted, but I guess if we're studying married couples, uh, I guess most of them wouldn't necessarily find abstinence as a, as a useful. Um, uh, okay, I'm sorry. Is uh, polygamy is legal in the country? In Malawi, it is, it is legal. And legal? Yeah, it's legal. And 17... Um, so it's, it's always been discussed, but it's definitely tolerated. Um, and 17% of the 17 of the participants of the survey, 17% of the husbands in my survey say they have more than one spouse. And it is more, it's more prevalent in the north, but it, it is, um, there are cases of polygamy all over the country and all over my sample. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So if we're thinking along the lines of the ABC campaigns, effective prevention strategies could be to either be faithful or to use condoms with the partner or with extramarital partner. And if we're thinking about how to 
ensure that these cooperative bargaining solutions are, are I, yeah, and in order to make sure that these discussions that couples have on which type of prevention method to use, um, typically these discussions would be what we refer under HIV-related spousal communication. So there is qualitative research, again, that shows that HIV-related spousal communication typically involves discussions on fidelity and condom use and condom use with other partners. So this, this seems to be, in fact, an important element in this discussion. Which is why I study those three measures. I study HIV-related spousal communication, the acceptance of condom use within marriage, and self-reported extramarital behavior, all the time while trying to capture multidimensional elements of bargaining power. So not only um, the economic situation, but also the number of wives she's living with, the, the awareness of outside options, as well as political participation. The data that I use um, comes from rural Malawi, and it has been, as I said, collected by the Malawi Diffusion Ideational Change Project at three different sites in rural Malawi in the northern, central, and southern region. Before I talk more about the sample, just a few comments on sample choice and external validity. Um, rural areas in, in Malawi are, as I said, increasingly affected by the HIV epidemic, which makes it more worthwhile to study them. So the national, the HIV, the, the adult HIV rate in, in Malawi is 10.8%, um, although it has been decreasing over the past five or six years. Um, but what we observe is that urban areas have HIV rates that are twice as high than rural areas. However, um, the prevalence in rural areas has been increasing quite a lot over the last year, so it, is, so it makes it important to study them. In the in the sample that I, please go ahead. So, so this is, I mean, from our perspective, this is a bizarre question, but from the perspective of Sub-Saharan Africa, especially in that region, this is 10% is actually really low. Yes. Um, so do you know what it is about the Malawi culture or practices that has kept it so much lower than the neighboring countries? Um, it has been higher. So it was at some point at the end of the 90s, it was up to 17, 18%. Um, Malawi has had a national population policy since 1994. Um, that promotes the, the use of contraceptives 1994, since 1994. Because before yeah. 1994, there was, let's say, reluctance against having a population policy that encourages um, the, use, the use of condoms and that tries to bring down fertility. But um, especially with the H, uh, HIV AIDS crisis becoming more important. But also, um, ART, especially over the last years, what has certainly helped a lot is that ART. Uh, medication, so antiretroviral, antiretroviral drugs have become more and more available, um, and also testing facilities. So basically, testing is for free if you have access to a hospital. So typically, um, so the people in my sample, the next um, hospital tends to be like 30 to 50 kilometers away. So, but in general, people have access to to testing, and and also um, most mostly condoms are being given away at reduced rates or even for free. So. There, there, there's a national policy in place. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so Malawi is also comparable to other countries in the region, and the particular sample that I'm using has, on average, an HIV prevalence rate of 7 to 8%. Um, this is slightly lower um, than... So this is lower than the national HIV prevalence, but it is comparable to whatever, what, for example, has been found by the demographic and health service in the region. So this is, it seems the sample is representative of 
the rural population in, in Malawi. The, the sample that I, that I use is the, the, the survey, the MDICP survey has actually been carried out from 1998 until 2010, but since 2004, everyone in the sample has also been tested for HIV. This is why I'm using the sample from 2004 onward, because from 2004 we can assume that everyone in the sample knows their status, and that, um, and that also the researchers also know, know the status of these individuals. The data set also further has <clears throat> some very nice variation on, on the regional level, so data comes from three different regions that are different, significantly different with respect to religion, ethnicity, but also gender roles. So in the north, um, patrilineal patterns are very important for residents and inheritance. So after a couple gets married, they would typically move to the husband's family's compound, and inheritance would also follow through that line. Whereas in the south of the country, uh, inheritance and residence typically follows a matrilineal pattern, so after you get married, you would move to the wife's family's compound. So there is quite a lot of variation regarding this. Also, polygamy is more common in the north, although there are cases all over the country. And I try to capture this by using region-specific dummies and region-specific time trends, and also control for the number of wives. <coughs> Again, just in, yeah. out of curiosity, is that typical, that matrilineal is correlated with Muslim? Or is um, that an exception? I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. necessarily know for the region. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily know for the region, but it, it is it is curious yeah. because um, yeah, but usually people always assume that the more Christian part of the country should definitely have lower rates of polygamy, but that is probably also because there were traditional structures, traditional um, roles before... Um, yeah, before probably a lot of missionaries also arrived from all sorts of religions. So there is typically, a, the, yeah, there's, there's typically a, a mix between traditional customs but also um, religions as, as, as brought in by, by missionaries. So. And I actually, I, I, did, I did first, I also tried to, um, to capture the different religions and the different ethnicities by including dummies for it, but as soon as you include a region-specific dummy, um, all of them get omitted. So it really seems to be a region-specific pattern. Um, yeah. So I, in my analysis, I used data on married couples from 2004 till 2008, and I also used data on the, on the junior wives. I do not use this in the main analysis, but I have a robustness check where I include the average values across all wives as well as the minimum or maximum values because they're not, I only have data on 80 junior wives whereas I have data on five or more than 500 couples. So because it's just not statistically, um, like from a statistical perspective, it's just not, I cannot individually include them. So in the main analysis, I focus on, on the couple, on the first wife and the husband. The questions that I use uh, for my dependent variables are for spousal communication. It is, have you ever talked with your spouse about the risk of HIV? And this variable is a dummy, so it's one if they say yes, they have, and it's zero if they say they haven't. And acceptance of condom use within marriage is, again, a dummy. Do you think it is acceptable to use a condom with a spouse to protect against HIV AIDS? Now, it would, of course, be nicer to also have a measure where, they, where you would ask participants have you used condoms with your partner? But that, there is in one year, there was a survey item on this, but many participants chose not to respond because they can, they can leave out some um, individual questions. So 
it seems to be difficult for people to talk about it on an individual level and also it is again linked to to the HIV status of the partner but I guess it's mainly also it, it seems to be difficult to directly talk about it so this is why I'm using a more general a more general um, yeah measure out of curiosity, are these written surveys or these interview surveys? These are interview surveys. So the interviews uh, were carried out by uh, interviews from the same region but not from the same village. And it was gender balanced. So it was 50% of the researchers, uh, of the interviewers were male, 50% uh -huh. were female. And they were randomly assigned to the randomly chosen participants. So, mm -hmm. But it was an interview question in, in the local language of that region. Um, so the third question is on self-reported extramarital behavior. And before asking that question, the interviewers again reminded everyone that whatever they said would be confidential, that neither their family nor the spouse would ever hear about this. And then they asked them, how many sexual partners did you have in the past 12 months? And because we know how many wives they have, um, we can then elicit whether they have been unfaithful during the past 12 months. And you treat that as a dummy as well? It, it, is, it is a dummy, yes. It is a dummy, yeah. Um, so when we are looking at, at the dependent variables, uh, these, these are average values based on data from 2004 to 2008. I will also show you the changes over time um, in, in a few slides. But if you're looking at the average values, we, we do see that 87% of the women in the sample say they talk to their husband about the risk of HIV compared to 93% of the husbands. So we might wonder what the reason is for this significant difference. There are two potential reasons. One is that if we have 17% of the husbands that have more than one wife, they could have talked to another wife about it. The second reason is that, and that's also been shown in qualitative research by Zuda and Chepengeno, that sometimes if if there is, if under or overreporting takes place, it is more likely that, with respect to such a survey item, men tend to overreport. Um, basically, like, yeah, probably, probably also reflecting that this is expected behavior to a certain extent. So, but in general, this is also why in the in the regression, I'm regressing um, both measures on on my data. So I'm I'm including both the the share of women who say they talk to their spouse, and I also include both the also include the share of, of men who said they talk to their spouse. Um, regarding the acceptance of condom use, we see that women are significantly more likely to be in favor of condom use within marriage. We see 38% of the women are in favor of condom use within marriage compared to 30% of the men. So there is a please go ahead. I'm I'm sorry. Um, there's a dynamic, at, at least in the United States, between couples that a lot of the time one partner will think they had a conversation that the other partner didn't perceive them having. Um, <laughs> which, and, and, I mean, it's, no, but I, I'm, I'm, speaking, I'm speaking specifically in, um, in, in the realm of conversations around HIV prevention. Um, and there's been a, a really specific problem with people using the term clean. Um, and how each partner perceives what the word clean means. Um, and I was wondering if there might be a similar dynamic um, in, in the populations in rural Malawi that, that you were interviewing. Is the, um, is the dynamic, would it be that men would think they, had, men would recall the conversation, women wouldn't, or the other way around? Or? So um, 
I haven't seen anything that's gender specific, mostly because I was I was working with homosexual couples. Yeah. Um, it was more that the um, HIV negative partner thought the word clean meant HIV negative, and HIV positive partner usually meant the word clean meant had showered. Um, so there was a, there was a really large misunderstanding about what that question even was. So I wouldn't I. There's no there's no survey item on what they understand from um, when 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 talking about HIV with their partner like there's no mm -hmm. mentioning of clean or not clean but there is uh, there is a qualitative both quantitative and qualitative study by Zula and Shepengeno that is based on data from the NBICP and they study determinants of spousal communication in a cross-sectional setting and um, and when in in the qualitative and the qualitative studies, so most of the most of the women said that when they talked to their husbands about HIV, they would mainly um, try to make them aware of the fact that prevalence around them has been increasing. So they would like mention examples where neighbors have ha have become HIV um, infected, or they would also mention cases where kids have become orphans. So they would typically mention the risk, and then they would also try to. Usually what they use, they use this word to take care. So to, and that was meant to include being faithful or using condoms, but very few participants actually explicitly said that the partner should be faithful. They, they tended to say you should take care, whichever that, yeah. But it would definitely be interesting to understand more about what individuals mean if they right. say, I take care, I'm clean, whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, with respect to self-reported infidelity, and this is a tricky one, um, we have less than 2% of the women who say they have been unfaithful. And this is pretty much in line with what most survey measures also in different countries have found. Because particularly in traditional societies, promiscuous behavior is not expected or accepted from women. So they tend to underreport a lot. Which is also why other studies that have looked at uh, determinants of extramarital behavior for example, the Paula et al. or Orfe, they typically use measures on self-reported male extramarital behavior because underreporting seems to be less of an issue because, um, because especially with women, because promiscuous behavior is so strongly, yeah, it, it is simply not expected or is accepted from, from these women, so they tend to underreport quite a lot, even though they were told that it would be treated as confidential. Yeah. What about for men? Apparently, so this seems to be the consensus in the research there that um, also when, when studying partnership histories over time that men seem to more consistently report. Um, what more, they seem to be more consistent about it and also in general research seems to be less worried about under-reporting. However, I guess whenever like, thinking about extramarital behavior, the only way for us to get an idea about it is to ask people. So we have to rely on whatever participants are, are telling the researchers. So, but obviously, it's because it's a measure that you cannot objectively observe, or it would be very difficult, I assume. <laughs> so you you want to, so you, you want to, you want to you have to rely. This guy. system concerning this extra In Africa, in general, this is a very poisoning of them. But I just want to know how legally in that regard if human complain or to, you know. Oh, I 
I have to admit, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily know whether, but I, I, this is certainly something I would want to, I would want to look at because depending on the on the legal consequences, obviously the incentive. You mean whether it could be, like, in, if you were to fight a divorce, or I mean, if a man uh, or a husband did the Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would I would have to I would have to check that. That's a very good question. Thank you. You might be getting to this, so tell yeah. me if I should wait. But on infidelity, because you can track down to the marital level, yeah. can you track down to the introduction of HIV from in infidel infidelitous um, partners? So in general, so I it is it is positively correlated. Yeah. It is positively correlated. I control for HIV in, in the regression. Um, yeah. But in general, in a, um, so as soon as I include all the other controls and especially the individual specific fixed effect, um, it fails to be significant. But if you look at it simply by studying correlations, there is definitely a positive correlation between infidelity and, and, um, and HIV status. There is, yeah. What percentage of the 10% of males were um, polygamous? So the reason that I ask that is if you have four wives, then how do you gain another one, right? So would that be an extramarital affair or would that be part of the courtship? I mean, I don't know enough about um, So I, because I, because I, in order to elicit whether someone has been unfaithful, I, I check whether there's a difference between the number of sexual partners during the last year and the number of wives. Um, so having, um, having a relationship with one of the other wives wouldn't count as being unfaithful, but there is, and I will show that in the, um, in, if you look at the data over time, there is in fact, there seems to be a pattern, at least to some extent. Um, there, there seems to be a pattern that eventually you, you would see that, um, yeah, people get married to new wives, but I, I have one regression where I also include getting married to a new wife in the infidelity equation, and it's not significant. So, but, yeah. Um, good. So from uh, in the in the analysis, I'm only using the infidelity measure of, of the man. Regarding the independent variables, I have both the dimensions of bargaining power, as well as demographic and other controls. So in order to measure intra-household bargaining power, I have um, I try to take into account the economic situation of both spouses. So I look at own earnings during the past year, and typically because it's um, it's a society where most people live on subsistence farming or just the potential to get employed in the tobacco production, but typically um, it would have some sort of an agricultural connection. Um, so whenever people are selling their products in local markets or if they, ha if they are employed during the season, um, these are own earnings they can generate. And because in the demographic and other controls, I control for family wealth. So this is own earnings that participants have generated and that they can use at their own discretion. Um, you have this measure of whether they are having outside relationships. Mm -hmm. This is awareness of outside options. Is that the same thing? This is um, this is a survey item, which is a dummy, where participants are asked, is it acceptable for a wife to leave her husband if he's beating her? Um, and I call it awareness of outside options. It basically means if I'm experiencing something in this relationship that is against my will, am I aware that I could leave? So it basically means that, yeah, it basically tries to measure the, the awareness of outside options. Yeah. What about their 
extramarital affairs as a, as a measure of bargaining power? I wanted to I wanted to include it. I was I was a bit reluctant towards including it because it could be potentially a, a bad control because you would probably you could have you could, you would expect that it is affected by the same factors as the prevention choice and then if these same factors are changing over time I run into all sorts of trouble when identifying it. That's why I specifically chose a measure of awareness of outside option that is not linked to sexual behavior. Yeah. That that was my that was my thinking, yeah. yeah. How, how do I mean do you do any linking of uh, women's earning power and women's education um, against bargaining power. So I um, I mentioned education here. Of course, if I'm using, I did include it in the regression, but because I'm using a sample of adults, so their education is not changing over time. And as soon as I start using fixed effects, which is basically like having a dummy for each and every individual, um, this variable gets gets omitted from the regression equation because as it is not changing over time, it is seen as a time constant factor. So I cannot directly measure, but in general, there is a lot of literature suggesting, of course, that education is important and is obviously linked to, um, to the bargaining power also from income. But in this case, because it's time constant, it, yeah, it's one of the things. In terms of polygamy, who is providing economically for the children and for the family or for this woman or how are a woman independent financially, or how is that? Um, I, so there's obviously a link between, or at least traditionally the intention would be to have a link between for polygamy and economic power of the husband. So the, like one of the ideas of polygamy would probably also be to have more wealthy men provide for several <coughs> women, I guess, in a very traditional kind of sense. And so, on average, I, I, I remember I did regress it at some point. They were slightly more likely to be wealthier, but then as soon as you take into account all the different wives that they have, for each particular wife, they don't necessarily have more resources. Mm -hmm. But there is, there's, there seems to be, yeah. Um, I'm going to ask uh, the economic, economic question that I'm sure you are typically asked yeah. here. It, the, I mean, none of this is exogenous. Did you try? I mean, it's super hard. I've just yeah. been just staring at this, and it seems like you have too little variation region or yeah. even village level to really get something exogenous. But I have been thinking. This is I have a slide on it. Um, mm -hmm. We can discuss okay. it. it. It's one of the extensions I I've been thinking about this a lot. Oh, so, okay. um, but definitely, maybe I'll speed this up a little, and then we have more time to discuss maybe this. We should just hold our questions now yeah. until you. Okay, great. <laughs> um, so I also I also take into account the number of wives that her husband has because this could obviously affect bargaining power. And as I said, the awareness of outside options um, measured by is it okay to leave your husband if he's beating you, and also the number of local political meetings that the participant responded he or she has attended during the past year. So we do see that um, men on general. Uh, Men have significantly higher earnings. These are values in Malawi kwacha. So 15,000 and something kwacha are like approximately $38, which seems very little. Uh, but we want to take into account that these are the earnings that, these are own earnings apart from family wealth. And also nearly everyone in the sample is living partly on subsistence farming. So their monetary income might not be the only source. And also the nominal 
um, nominal GDP per capita in Malawi in 2012 was $253, so you also have to take into account the surroundings that people live in. Um, but we do see that men, are, men have significantly higher earnings than women. Actually, all of these differences in the bargaining power variables are significant, so men have more bargaining power in each and every of these variables. We also see that men have more education, <coughs> although with around four years of education, no one really got to benefit a lot from education. Uh, we also see that um, men on average have 1.2 wives, so out of the 17% of the sample that are polygamous, most of them will have a second wife, so it's very rare to observe a third or a fourth wife. And we also see that 79% of the women think it's acceptable to leave a, a violent spouse compared to 70% of the men. And we see that political participation during the past year is again, that we have significantly higher political participation among men. Um, Regarding the demographic controls, just one comment regarding the HIV status. The HIV status with around 4%, uh, HIV prevalence with around 4% is significantly lower than the general sample. This has something to do with the fact that if I am, I'm using only the data on couples that have participated, that, where, where both partners have participated, and where both partners have participated in the study for more than one year. So this is potentially selective to have a sample of people who are repeatedly participating in the sample, and this is probably also why I observe lower HIV rates, because it's potentially selective. But because I control for HIV status, I hope to somehow take this into account, and I also have fixed effects to potentially correct for this. And I have data on more than 530 couples, and I also have data on 80 second spouses. And as you can see, the third and the fourth spouse, that is really not very relevant. So typically, whenever I'm using data on the junior wives, I use average values. Um, on, on these junior wives, but the main regressions are really using the data on the first spouse only. Um, just a few statistics over time. Yes, yeah, please go ahead. I think we should probably hold because Aisha? Care. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if we're thinking about HIV prevalence over time, we do not see significant increases over time, and we do not observe significant um, differences between um, men, and, men and women which is, again, different from what you would typically see in the MBICP data. Typically, you would see that women have higher, higher prevalence. Um, I also included, on this next slide, I also include the, and also you see the, the, the bars are the, the average values of, of, the, of HIV, and I also included confidence intervals, so we can do sort of like an eyeball test to see whether they're significantly different. Here I also include data on the junior wives. Of course, because I have so, so few junior wives, I only have 80 junior wives. Of course, um, it is very difficult from a statistical point of view, but I just wanted to show you, uh, on average, even though we cannot interpret it this, this statistically, that um, junior wives have, on average, higher HIV prevalence, which is in line with what is found in pretty much every data set that studies polygamous couples. And we also see, regarding the HIV-related spousal communication, we see that over 80% um, have had this type of communication and the numbers are significantly increasing over time, which is probably also why in 2008 the survey item wasn't in included anymore because nearly everyone has had this type of conversation at some point. But we also see significant gender differences. Uh, regarding the acceptance of condom use, the acceptance of condom use among men 
hasn't hasn't significantly increased over time. It it did significantly increase among women, however, over the time period observed. And also, if you're looking at the self-reported infidelity measure, we do see that there is a significant um, increase between 2006 and 2008. Regarding the own earnings, which is also an important measure of bargaining power, we see that there are significant changes, particularly between 2006 and 2008, in order to, um, because also these changes could be due to the fact that it might have been a good season, they might have been able to sell more products, but this could also reflect inflation. So in the analysis, I use um, locked values of earnings for, for each particular year, and I also form earnings groups for a particular year, so being in the no, low, high, or medium earning group. If you're looking at the number of wives over time, and this comes back to your question from before, we see that there are, they're not, um, they're not very big differences, but they are statistically significant between 2004 and 2006. We do see that, um, yeah, men have more wives after this. And also, if you look at the share of polygamous relationships, we see that um, starting off at 15% of the men living in a polygamous relationship, we end up with around 18.5% of the men living in a polygamous relationship. And we also see that um, the number of men who, had, who got a new wife during one year of the survey is typically below 4%, which corresponds to about 25 men in the sample. Um, also, if you're looking at political participation, we do see that there are significant differences over, over time and also significant difference between men and women. If we, if we want to explain this drop between 2004 and 2006, this could be related to the fact that um, national elections took place in 2004. So if in the course of the national elections also more local political events took place, this, um, this could have an impact. And also local, um, local and regional elections were scheduled to take place since 2004, but they have continuously been postponed and they're now rescheduled for 2014. So this could potentially also reflect that at some point people got, might have gotten a bit tired of the election being postponed, but then in 2009 it was supposed to take place, so maybe you see an increase. But generally it's probably reflecting the fact that in 2004 there was a national election that took place. I, I then use this data to estimate a linear probability model using this, this panel data. and. For each and every regression, I always include the, the choice of the prevention method and regress it on the bargaining power of both spouses. And I also regress it on the demographic controls. And I also try to capture um, unobserved factors, such as the behaviors, uh, the behavior patterns, and the attitudes that I mentioned before. I try to capture this by using individual-specific fixed effects, basically like having a dummy for each and every person. And I also include controls for the village and the region of residence because there might be um, different norms in different regions. And I also try to include the impact of increasing HIV prevalence, campaigns taking place over time, maybe uh, any national event that could have an effect on this. I include, I, I capture this by a time trend and I also capture different events in the region by having region specific time trends. So I. This allows me to take into account quite a lot of factors that are related to, um, to HIV prevention uptake. And because I'm not only um, including a fixed effect and the time trend, but I also 
study HIV prevention conditional on being positive or negative um, and also conditional on the other factors that could affect the preferred prevention method, such as the number of children or the cohort that you were born in, I, I assume that I can capture a lot of factors that affect the choice. And I'm studying um, both the level of the bargaining variables as well as the relative difference between husband and wife. If you're looking at the determinants of spousal communication, uh, in the first column I have the, uh, I regress the, um, I regress the value of, of the husband. So basically, husbands who say that they have talked about with their spouse about the risk of HIV and what they can do to um, deal with this risk um, tend to have significant. Um, are so the higher the husband's earnings, the less likely it is that they have had this type of conversation, or that he says that he has had this type of conversation. And also, the more political events, the more local political events that the husband has attended during the last year, the less likely, the significantly less likely it seems that he reports that he has talked to his spouse about the risk of HIV. And note that this is after taking into account um, fixed effects, time trends, and also all these other demographic controls, anti-HIV status. If I look at whether women report that they have talked to their husbands about the risk of HIV, that's the second column, we see that Higher, uh, the higher the earnings of the husband, the less likely it is that she reports this. I do not find a significant coefficient on the earnings of the spouse. Um, and I we also see that women who are more aware of the outside options, so women who say, I would leave a, it's okay to leave a partner if he's beating you, also seem to be less likely, interestingly, to talk to their spouse. And this could potentially reflect what has also been found by Renier and Twiley, where they show that divorce seems to be used as a way to mitigate the risk of HIV infection. So they follow couples over time and they show that women who were saying in one year that they are very worried about the risk of HIV that their husband is putting them to, um, were significantly more likely to have a divorce the year after. So there seems to be this element of um, dealing with risk in, a, in another way, more along the lines of if you're thinking of Exit voice, exit and voice options. You would probably use the exit option rather than the voice option. Regarding condom use, the only significant determinant whether couples, both partners, are in favor of condom use, seems to be the number of wives that the husband has. Potentially reflecting that junior wives have a higher HIV prevalence, and then also the the first. And this is these are values for the first spouse, so she probably seems to be aware of of this risk. Regarding infidelity. Um, none of my bargaining power measures um, are significantly related to, to self-reported extramarital behavior. I, also among the other variables um, which I used in the regression, we do see that um, if, um, so HIV, HIV status seems to play an important role, um, and also the number of children basically, um, yeah, the number of children is actually positively related, which of course represents reverse causality because you probably have more kids because you've been unfaithful at some point. So, um, and also, and regarding infidelity, the, there, there are quite a few potential issues related to reverse causality when it comes to infidelity because if you're thinking about, say, the number of wives, maybe I'm having more wives because I was unfaithful in the past. And there's quite a lot of qualitative research showing that one channel for which new wives become new wives is actually 
by previously having been infidelity. So there is reverse causality that I'm facing with respect to infidelity. I'm not worried about reverse causality when it comes to the other measures because I don't necessarily think that because I talk to my husband about HIV that he's now more likely to have higher earnings. And I'm also not worried that because I, I mean, I'm in favor of using condoms that my, that my husband now takes a new wife. So I'm not worried about reverse causality with the other measures, but I'm worried about reverse causality with the infidelity measure. And when I look at the differences, the relative differences, relative earnings differences um, are reflected by a significantly lower probability for spousal communication as reported by the man. And also the differences in political participation seem to be related to um, significantly. The difference goes in which direction? Uh, the difference is that it's I, I subtract the um, it's the earnings of the husband minus the earnings of the spouse. So high differences mean that he has relatively more bargaining power. So if he is having relatively more bargaining power, it is significantly less likely that he um, reports that they talked about HIV. Um, of course, I cannot deduct the number of wives. Um, so um, here again, I find a significant coefficient. More generally, also related to the reverse causality measures that I, uh, problems that I mentioned with respect to infidelity, I also tried to include a dummy for getting married to a, to a new wife, which is here. Basically, the dummy is one if he got married to a new wife um, during the last period. And um, again, it's probably only important to look at the, at the fifth column because that's where I'm worried about um, reverse causality, and I do not find this to be significant either. So. Does it affect your other variable, I mean, your size of the coefficients of the others? I mean, it seems like you're smaller now, but maybe not. They are, so it's one, two, one, eight. So regarding not communication, much. because not communication much. is only available in, in two years, so this is obviously losing the panel dimension. Um, yeah. Not much happening. Yeah, but it's not, it's not too much, it's not too much happening, no. I also performed um, other robustness checks. I have the tables in the um, in the in the appendix, um, but I decided, in the interest of time, not to show them all. But basically, the results are extremely robust. So I have I don't have changes in the sign or significance of the coefficient. I have slight changes in the size. So I first perform uh, the approach where I take the average values across all spouses. So not only the first spouse, but I take the average bargaining power of each and every spouse that he is married to, and the results are very comparable. Then I use this minimum approach where I take the least empowered of his wives, so basically the one with the least education, the lowest earnings, um, the, the lowest degree of awareness of outside options, the fewest number of political events that she attended, and again, it's um, the results are highly similar, and the same holds true for taking the most empowered wife. I also look at earnings in groups instead of using the log of earnings, and again the results are the same, showing that the higher his earnings, the less likely it is that they talk about HIV. I also perform a factor analysis to have an index of bargaining power rather than including the um, individual measures, and if I use this index of empowerment, one index for, uh, for, both, um, for both spouses and Again, I do not. I do not find the results to be different. Higher female bargaining power is associated with improved uptake. Lower male bargaining power as well. I also perform a conditional load estimation, and again, 
I do find positive effects of increases in intra-household bargaining power for women. So summing up what I can do in this setup is I can study women and their husbands over time while taking into account individual behaviors that are unobservable as long as they are time constant, but provided that these are behaviors and attitudes that are not very likely to change over time. So if I'm a very diligent, careful person, I'll probably be that in 2004 as well as in 2006. Um, and to the extent that my behavior is changed by the increase in the HIV prevalence or campaigns that have taken place, I can capture it with the time trends and also I can control for HIV status of everyone as well as other factors that would affect prevention behavior. What I cannot do in the setup is that it seems very hard to avoid reporting bias because infidelity and condom use are generally not observable to the re researchers, so we have to rely on what people are telling us. And also it seems to be challenging to isolate bargaining power from the other effects of the variables. For example, income could have an effect on, on access to prevention and treatment, but also education has an effect on information as well. But in general, I believe as long as this is not directly related to my variables, but going through an unobserved ability channel, I can at least capture this. And what is challenging is to deal with reverse causality regarding infidelity. And I try to also include the number of new wives and it doesn't seem to change too much. I'm still not getting different results on the infidelity measure. So this is certainly something that I'm looking forward to, the feedback. But summing up, I, I do find that preventive behavior is affected by a range of variables shaping the life situation of both spouses and that factors that are associated with increases and gains in female bargaining power, like own earnings, fewer co-wives, and increased political participation are related to increases in HIV-related spousal communication and the acceptance of condom use within marriage. And there are, of course, open issues with respect to the reverse causality issue. So coming to, to your point, I did think about potential extensions quite a lot. And so if you're thinking about the ideal experiment in this setup, ideally we would want to have some sort of exogenous, randomly assigned shift in bargaining power. And if you're thinking about an IV strategy, an instrumental variable strategy that would mimic this type of shift, we would require an exogenous change in bargaining power in, any of, in, in a variable that affects bargaining power but does not affect knowledge of HIV or attitudes towards prevention. So there are several potential candidates that come to mind, and I tried pretty much every single one of them. So we could think about the death of family members and, and kin support, as it's done by, by Orfei. But in a sample of people where 7 to 8% is infected with HIV and death related to HIV seems to be an important factor in explaining mortality in this region, I wouldn't necessarily want to use kin support because if the death of the family member is related to AIDS, I'm not, I'm not better off than before. I've also been thinking about using the political representation of women on the local level. As I said, the last local election took place in 2000 and has then since been postponed. It's scheduled to take place in 2014. Um, so I don't have data in this regard either. There are other local and regional data sets providing for gender equality measures, but again, they're only available in 2004 and 2010, so I would lose the panel dimension. I've been thinking about using rainfall data, such as it has been done by Duflo and Udry, where they look at the um, at 
basically is, it, it's based on data from Cote d'Ivoire and the idea is that as men and women would plant different crops that are differently affected by rainfall, this would then sort of like in, induce exogenous shifts in bargaining power. But this requires that I assume and that there is a gender-specific labor distribution with respect to farming, and I don't have data on this in my, in my data set, so I would rather not assume this. And I guess I also already capture a lot with this combination of village, region-specific time trends, so whatever is going on in terms of climate, I probably already capture. I've also been thinking about using a randomized financial incentive that has been given out during the first HIV test in 2004. As a matter of fact, this incentive has been used by Rebecca Fornton in an AER publication. Um, but the average incentive, so first of all, again, I would only focus on economic bargaining power, the one thing that I wanted to go beyond. So, and also the average incentive is one US dollar. So even in a sample of, um, of, of participants that are not making a lot of money, one US dollar per year, or even if I'm thinking, so I received one US dollar in 2004, that's why I'm talking to my husband in 2006, I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I also, I, I did study correlations, I, I received the data and I did study correlations between the bargaining power measures and this randomized financial incentive and there is no significant correlation. So I, I will be very, very happy to hear um, your feedback on this and if anyone has additional ideas on how we could deal with any sort of exogenous shift in bargaining power, I'd be very excited to hear this. And I also thank you so much for your attention. Yes. So, um, I, I mean, it, it's a very nice paper and a super careful analysis with the limitations that you have. Um, I might tread a little more lightly on the reverse causality uh, on additional wives. So I, th I think I could tell a story that uh, my first wife, um, my is a bad example, but uh, <laughs> a first wife insisting on condom use and wanting to talk to me about HIV AIDS prevention the whole time oh. might make me inclined to want to look for another one. <laughs> so so I, that was too quick for me. I mean, I, I think the reverse causality on earnings power seems pretty clear yeah. to me that that, I couldn't tell that story. But on additional wives, it might depend on how much I like my first one. Mm -hmm. I have what I, what I tried, oh sorry, what I tried at some point, I, um, I tried to include both the measures, um, both the dependent variable, not only whether, um, whether he says that they have talked to each other about the risk of HIV, but also what she says, I tried to include this in the regression, but that's true, I have not included whether she has talked to him depending on whether he wants to cheat on her and get a new wife. Or Did you mean I would have the dependent variable like getting a new I wife? I don't actually know how you would do it econometrically. I, I'm not worse in the data enough to, but I just when you said reverse causality is not an issue. It potentially is. I think, yeah. I yeah. think just I could tell a story why it could yeah. be one, but I don't know what it is, mm -hmm. but I'm just telling, mm -hmm. it's not implausible for me. And, and the threat of that is um, what we've seen a lot actually in, in U.S. communities, but the, there's a gender imbalance, in, specifically in communities with high rates of incarceration because it's usually men, but if there's a gender imbalance, women know that men can easily find another partner, and that makes them less likely to have bargaining power in the first place. So it's... I think, I've been thinking about this too, because I thought if you're living in a, in a society where 
especially in the north, where the ratio of men having more than one wife is, is so high, that this could then reflect that most women in the society wouldn't necessarily have much bargaining power. So if I'm surrounded by people who are living with junior wives on the same compound, then I, I, I am probably in a situation where everyone has low bargaining powers. This is also why I wanted to go and use political measures because as soon as the general situation of women in the region is improving, I could probably expect that this would also reflect uh, on my own situation, but, yeah. Well, I think hidden in your, just a quick footnote, but hidden in your comment might be, I don't know, might be another identification strategy, and that's gender imbalance. Yes. yes. Is there village, and that seems like a crazy idea, maybe not, but is there, you know, a differentiation in the gender imbalance at the village level? It, it could be. Um, I, I should really check that because especially in the south, because the south is much closer to the capital, Lilongwe, and there's a lot of um, rural-urban migration because of, because of work. Um, and because that's actually, yeah, that, that is certainly something I, I, I want to look at because so I could study, yeah, so I could definitely study or try to have a, a measure of gender imbalance in the general population, probably, preferably not from my sample though, but rather from from, from census data. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I think about an exogenous change in bargaining power, I think immediately of Professor McGinn's paper on Zambian girls and training Zambian girls in negotiation skills. Mm -hmm. I believe she does include an HIV portion, but one of her treatments, I think, takes it out, too. So if it could be scaled up to an older audience and the mm -hmm. women receive some kind of civic education, farming education, something that includes negotiation training, you could vary them. So definitely, um, this is, um, yeah, thinking in terms of, like, if one had funding and the opportunity yeah. Yeah. to um, to carry out any sort of exogenously assigned uh, randomly assigned training they would be perfect because okay. I was when I when I when I first read the paper I was like this is exactly what you want um, but provided that this is my dissertation this is the data that I have um, but if this is certainly I think this would be extremely interesting to to, to study to really study at um, not only providing information because I don't think information on prevention is the issue I have like not only because policies have been in place for such a long time but also if you look at survey items measuring questions related to how can you protect yourselves against getting infected 95% more than 95% even towards the end know how to use condoms they know what what risk factors are there seems to be an issue between like from getting from information to, to action that that seems to be the issue and the, uh, do, do, do these wives have their own farm land because the economy is coming from farm and whatever it is? Yeah. Do they have their own plot farm or do they just, uh, the husband owns the land and the women are just working in the land and the, the husband controls the income and whatever it is? And uh, I wonder, another question is the first wife, mm -hmm. the first wife, how did she, how did she, uh, why she only, she, why did you only you ask her alone? Because they don't, they, she, she has a power over this with the rest of the wives, so mm -hmm. how is it? And their relationship together mm -hmm. is miserable, I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, regarding the land ownership, there is, um, there is a measure available for the 2004 data, 
and they even specifically ask whether she inherited the land or he inherited the land. Mm -hmm. Now what is really interesting, in general I have significantly more men who say that the land came from, from their family, but also in cases where the women say, where both partners say, yes, we have land, and if the woman says, yes, I've inherited this land from my family, um, he almost always will he say he also inherited through his family. Or it would, he would say, I also have land, but it comes from my family's wife, uh, from, my, from my wife's family. So there seems to be, yeah, so besides the fact that I only have this data in one year, um, there also seems to be an understanding of common goods ownership that is somewhat biased towards her inheritance also being his inheritance, if I want to phrase it like this. Um, regarding the junior wives, I would like to use the data on them, but because I have, all in all, I have about 100 junior wives. So I have 500 couples, so I have 500 uh, wives and 500 husbands, but I only have 80 second wives and around 20 third and fourth wives. So it's really, it would be very difficult to really rely on the data in that sense because I may be just observing individuals. Yes. Do you have any data on um, their, the couple's fertility choices as to how many children they have and how many children they want to have? And could you match or could you measure bargaining power based on actual number of children versus preferred fertility in, those, in that group? I would have to check if I have data on preferred fertility, but I what I include in the data is um, I always include the number of children that they have, and this is different, of course, especially for the polygamous men, they have more kids than the um, than their wives. So I, I control for the number of kids that they have, and assuming that someone who has two kids might be more likely to maybe have an additional one as opposed to someone who has like six kids already. So that extent is probably captured, but I, I should definitely check if I have... Um, data on yeah on fertility preferences versus um, how many kids they actually but even isn't there literature suggesting that women tend to have lower fertility preferences than men there, so yeah. even if you don't have that mm -hmm. maybe you can still gain a little bit on bargaining I mean again that might be you know reading too much of the number of children but I'm just reminded that yeah. that's also generic too that men like to have more children Definitely. Yeah. So this is, uh, I guess, like the the paper, for example, by, by Nava Ashraf yeah. and Erica Field from Zambia. This is also what they what they use. That generally, um, mm -hmm. women tend want to have less kids than than men. So empowering them with fertility choices is. But yeah, I, I could definitely think about. It. What, what are the normative rates of um, infant mortality here? And it, it, does that have any bearing on any bargaining? Um, so I, so infant mortality, I, I don't know the number by heart, but it is, um, it, it is as Malawi is one of the least developed countries, it's among the highest in the world, but um, what I see in the data over time is that there are, there are changes in the number of children that people have, and um, negative, and then positive again. So there is, um, and also there, there, there are survey items where, um, that actually ask data on mortality of, of of the kids that they that they have, and so I so I could I could look into this more closely. But what is the link to bargaining power? Well, if they're going to, if, if there's a sense of not being able to have many children or not, mm -hmm. I mean, children have an economic role too in in 
yeah. it's kind of agrarian agricultural societies. So an average day, um, an average day have like six or seven children. So they, yeah. they 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 have a lot. Like even though infant mortality is high, they have a lot of children in the end. But it's probably also not. Um, this is also why the the national population policy has very much focused on um, lengthening birth intervals because it's like it is significantly decreasing um, both mother and, and infant mortality. Yeah, but I could. With that, thank you very much, Eric, and thank you all for coming. <laughs> this concludes the semester. Uh, happy and successful exams, mm -hmm. and thank you for coming despite them. Mm -hmm. And have a great break, and do something wonderful in January. <laughs> <laughs>